The Lord be with you. And I want to share something that um, it's it's been a powerful word in my own life, and I I believe that there's many of us listening who need what this text is saying to us. And so it's from Luke chapter 18. This is recorded in Matthew and in Mark, but I'm, I'm just choosing this one in Luke. In verse 35, as Jesus was approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. And hearing the crowd going by, he began to inquire what this was. They told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he called out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet, shut up, man. But he kept crying out, all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. And when he came near, he questioned him, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, I I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you whole, well. Immediately he regained his sight, began following him, glorifying God, and when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. Okay, the the story of blind Bartimaeus. But what I want to get to sooner or later is in verse 41, when Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? Get, Get the picture here, although I think it's pretty obvious that they are coming into Jericho. That is where the beggars had their, what shall I say, patch. It was the place where beggars were allowed to beg. And and so the the city, their their attitude was we put up with the beggars. They, They are something that is with us and we can't get rid of them. So just give them somewhere out there on the edge of the city where people are coming and going, especially the um, hopefully rich who are bringing in their wares to sell, the, the businessmen, and hopefully they will take pity on these poor wretches and throw them a coin. Uh, that that's the the picture behind the fact they came upon the beggars as they came into Jericho. But also, these were blind beggars. There were other kinds of beggars, but these were blind. And, well, how can I put it? The, The blind were looked upon, first of all, as perfectly useless because they didn't give anything to the society of the city. They, they were just alive, and that's about it, in the eyes of the people of that day. And, and so that's why they're dumped at the entrance to the city. They, they were a pathetic sight, because every morning the blind would, I don't know how they did it, but they, they picked each other up somehow, 
And it was a sight that is recorded from those days where all the blind would be walking in a line, hands on the person's shoulder in front of them, and so the saying, the blind lead the blind. But they came somehow to their patch, and there they sat down. Um, There was also the suggestion. It doesn't come out too strong, but you hear it even in the words of the disciples. Uh, The suggestion was that they had done something terribly wrong. At least, maybe they had, and that's why they were blind, or maybe their parents or grandparents. Do you remember when another situation altogether, uh, but as they passed by this man born blind, the disciples said to Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? That was the mentality of the people. Interestingly, that is still among a big section of Christian people today. But um, so, so already they're, they're shamed. They're shamed as having no part in society, just sit there and hope for some charity. And on top of that, you're probably sitting there because you sinned or your parents sinned and the curse of God is on you. That's a Pharisee society for you. Um, they're, they're sitting there, blind beggars waiting for charity and, and well, what is life? I mean, they're not going to get a continual flow of cash. And so there they sit in their patch. And interestingly, they wore a a special coat. It was sort of their mark. It was their right to sit there and beg, the cloak they wore. And there they sat. And of course, the conversation between themselves was picked up from the conversations going on all around them. They sit there in their blindness and listen to what people are saying, listening uh, sort of to the daily news just by hearing, overhearing conversations, discussing it among themselves. And what had happened um, in the last, uh, what shall I say, last year for sure, Maybe being Jericho, it might have happened a little earlier than that, that that something was on the move. First of all, it had been John the Baptist, and he had been preaching just up the road, just north on the river Jordan um, from where they sat. And so they'd certainly heard about John the Baptist and discussed him. And of course, the questions, was he the Messiah? Was he the one promised? And But then came the news of Jesus. Try, try, try and get inside the heads of these people, not, not only the beggars, but all the people of, of Jericho. It was a substantial city right on the River Jordan, and they would hear uh, of the amazing miracles. They would hear signs, wonders, healings of everything. They, it trickled down. You know how it is, especially in a society where there's no internet, you see. Or you, you depend, uh, no radio, no television, you depend on word of mouth. And so every trader coming down on with his donkeys to, to trade in Jericho brought with him news and everybody clusters around to hear the latest news. 
and the news. There was this man called Jesus, and he's healing, and healing even lepers. And the blind are seeing, and those that have never walked, the crippled are leaping and dancing, and and on and on and on. Every trader brought his own news, brought down the latest thing he'd seen or heard. And then what this this Jesus was saying, words of forgiveness, words of love, words that contradicted the religious Pharisees of the day. And the blind heard. They, that I say again, sitting there in their patch, that's all they could do. It is overhear the conversations of the passers-by, overhear the conversations of those who clustered on street corners to discuss this incredible, that they've never heard or thought of before, such as they're hearing. And they listened, and they listened, and they talked among themselves. All I know for sure, is what Bartimaeus came up with. Bartimaeus, one of the blind beggars. Um, And interestingly, for some of you, the word B-A-R, as in Bartimaeus, B-A-R means son of in Hebrew. And then Timaeus, well, that was the name of his father, and so he, we don't know his given name. All we know and all that everybody knew was he's the son of Timaeus, Bar Timaeus. Um, that would suggest his father had been or was a very important person. Uh, but his son, blown by, blind, had just been dumped there at the entrance to the city. And his only claim to any significance was... He'd come, been dumped there by a very important person, family. And we do know what he's thinking. At least we can very easily deduce what he's thinking. He puts it together. You know, two and two make four. He's in the darkness of his physical sight. He is 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 putting this together. That that this one is is bringing sight to blind people. He he's causing the persons who can't walk to walk. He he he's bringing forgiveness and love. He's heard it over and over again. But he knew enough. Whoever this chap really was, he knew the Old Testament enough. He'd heard it, and probably in his blindness, his other senses picked it up, and he could memorize better than most, but he had deeply heard it and knew that these are the words that describe the coming Messiah, that person that the entire Old Testament had anticipated would come. I, I I know he went there, and I know that was his conclusion, because one of the titles of the Messiah in the Old Testament is Son of David. And we just read that when he called out to Jesus, he said, Jesus of Nazareth, Son of David. That was a massive statement for him to make. Massive. 
He was identifying Jesus as the Old Testament Messiah of the genealogy son of David, which meant then, logic, that if he is the Messiah, then all of the covenant promises that that God has sworn in his love to give to us, he has now done so in this person. This is the Messiah, the fulfillment to the covenant. And there stole into his inmost being the, the assurance that Here is the Messiah doing what the Old Testament said he would do. Then I am the subject of such. I am the one that he could heal and give me back my sight. Now, that might sound just very logical to us as we analyze this, but I go back to the fact he's a beggar. You see, the beggar what was given an identity by the city. They they were the irrelevant people. They were the insignificant. Yes, they were the worthless people. In, In every meaning of the word to the city folk, they were worthless. They don't, they don't work and therefore they don't pay anything into the city. All they do is sit there take charity and eat and drink what is given to They are useless to this city. And that, I say again, was the identity of the beggar. He was the person of insignificance. He's not worth listening to, you see. He's got no voice. He's He's a nobody in every sense of the word. Can't expect anything. Get that the best you could ever hope for is that you get the best spot in the line of beggars. That's about it. That that's how a beggar thought. Do, do you understand? When they imagined themselves and when they saw themselves in that interior mirror of their imagination, they saw an insignificant, worthless person that has no meaning in life except to hear a coin drop into his can. And so, yeah, I mean the conversations we hear. uh, They're marvelous, but never forget who you are. You're a beggar. You're a blind, useless, worthless, insignificant beggar. Now, pull your coat around you. Thank God you've got a spot to beg and leave it at that. But he doesn't, because for him to say those words, that one sentence gives the whole game away. For him to say those words means it was burning inside of him. The Messiah has come. The Messiah is now in the process of fulfilling Old Testament promises. He is here, and therefore there is hope And remember the meaning of the word hope is expectancy. An expectancy charged with emotion. There's an expectancy and it had to come out in words that he shared with the other beggars. I mean, get them excited too. 
And remember, whatever our identity is, whatever our own mentality is of ourselves, remember, he has healed the blind already, and we hear about it. But apparently it didn't catch with the others. I I don't know if they mocked him, but it's for sure that he stood alone. You see, we only read of blind Bartimaeus in this story, but you have to understand that part of the city would be lined with beggars. This was not an isolated beggar. This this was one of a, a, a good number of them. That's where they all had to come to. And so he finds himself alone. He's outside of the thinking of the whole society of Jericho, And he's outside of the thinking of all the other beggars that are sitting around him. And yet he can't get rid of it. It's burning. It's a passion. It's the pulse beat of his very being. The Messiah has come and he heals the blind. And I'm blind and therefore, yeah, therefore, it means, it means, yeah. But I'm going against my ancestors. Everything that anybody has ever said in the family about beggars and everything that everyone affirms around me about beggars. I I, I contradict it. I'm going against it. He, He saw himself as having worse. I want you to hear this so deeply. He... He saw himself as having worth. The one for whom Messiah has come. And therefore, I am worth healing. I don't know whether he heard of the stories that Jesus told up in the Galilee. It's very very possible. I say again, remember, the entire newscast was in the traders and those who brought news, and they were full of everything they could hear and transmit. Um, Did did he hear of of Jesus talking of a shepherd that went to find the sheep, the sheep that was lost, the sheep that was gone into the wilderness? But the shepherd goes after that one sheep. Why? Well, because he owned the sheep. He called it my sheep. He was not going out there hunting wild animals. He was going searching specifically for his own sheep, even though it was a stupid sheep that had wandered away from the flock. But the shepherd saw that sheep as worth saving. Please understand that. The message that came down to Bartimaeus was, the Messiah has come and we are worth saving. And the word save in the language of the New Testament includes physical healing. The word in the Greek language is sozo, S-O-Z-O. And it is used interchangeably to describe salvation or release from sin, from Satan and also from sickness and disease. It's the, it's the same word. And so this this man, can you hear what I'm saying here? He is he's seeing himself as worth salvation. He is worth, the, the, the Messiah has come 
for him and the likes of him. So it means that he doesn't see himself as a blind man asking to be healed. So much as a man going to receive his covenant inheritance, that covenant inheritance of sight and of living a normal life away from the begging patch. I, I, it's interesting, it's mentioned in Mark's account of this, uh, that when he did go, when Jesus called him, that he, and Mark makes a point, he left his coat right there at the begging patch. Well, what's that mean? It means he was taking off that which marked him, that which was, shall I say, his badge, his right to sit on that patch and beg. He left it. He was saying, I don't need this anymore. I am a man going to receive my inheritance that this man who is the Messiah has come to give me. That's massive. Now, he called, and of course, when he called, he didn't make it up on the spur of the moment. The way this man called out to Jesus, uh, he'd obviously, this had been churning inside of him for weeks, even months. And, and, and so it comes to the word mercy. Jesus, have mercy. Now, mercy, what is mercy? The... The word has been distorted in today's language. It, um, it sort of means to have pity on a pitiable person. It's actually a word that would fit the idea of a person who stands at the traffic light with the sign and, and he, he homeless and starving. And, and so you have pity that, that's the idea in, in modern language. But I want to go back to how these people understood the word mercy. It has deep roots in the Old Testament Hebrew uh, language. And that would be translated in our Old Testament in a, a modern good version as loving kindness. If you're reading a much older version, it will be translated as mercy. But in its rootage, this word is rooted in the covenant. Mercy, right from the get-go, loving kindness is the word of covenant, which means that God is saying, I will bestow my love upon you throughout every day, and I do so swearing upon my own being that I will do so. That's the meaning of covenant. And so, mercy, it means this loving kindness, this God keeping his love to us. It means his doing love in our lives. Not, not a theory, you see, not something you would learn in some theological place. Um, no, th this is in the kitchen. This is in the workplace. This is in my deepest self, where the love of God is being urgently given into my life. Loving kindness, the covenant of God being worked out in me 
day by day by day. And then also the word means compassion. And don't confuse that with sympathy. Uh, Sympathy is just feeling bad for someone and hurrying on your way. Compassion, it's to the word C-O-M, the Latin word here, compassion. In English, it's taken from Latin. And so C-O-M is with passion. Well, do I have to explain passion? That, that is the, my, my with passion. I, I, I have come into your situation and I feel what you're feeling. I see what you're facing and everything within me rises up to say, no, that shall not be. Compassion. That, that's this word mercy. Throughout the Old Testament, God is revealed as being the God of mercy, merciful. But mercy then is an outray of the very being of God. You know what I mean? Uh, it's the isness of God. Or to put it this way, God does not merely have mercy. For anything you have can ebb and flow. I have a bottle of water here, and if I keep drinking it, then there won't be a bottle of water there. And then I'd refill it, and so there would be a bottle of water there, up and down, depending on the usage. Well, God's mercy isn't like that. It isn't that he can use it up, or it's it's a lot for this person, not so much for that, but no. Mercy is the isness of God. When he said that his name is I am, mercy was included in that. It's the I amness of God. Or the word I've used many times on these programs is he owns his mercy. It's, it's a, a living ray of creative light. This mercy comes forth from the God who is love. Well, Compassion, mercy is an expression of love. It's the urgent movement of love. Have you noticed in the scripture, whenever it talks of compassion, it always says he was moved with compassion. It's an urgent movement, the being of God moving toward us, that his love might be fulfilled in us, done, kept in us to unite us and bring us into the creating embrace of love and making us whole, to unite us to the life of God, which means health to our body and mind and emotions as well as the life at our core spirit. It is love that that is so into where we are that he is our provider he is our protector releasing the love of god continually into our life the mercy the loving kindness the compassion of god so now this is where you got to hear carefully if it's it's the being of god it's who he is So it isn't something that originates externally. You see what I mean? It's not something 
Well, I just said it. He, he doesn't have it. He is it. You see, if he has it, then he came from somewhere. No, this doesn't come from anywhere, for it is who God is, unchangeable. It means that whenever you meet him, this is who you meet. So, and this, you can't be good enough to receive mercy. Oh, uh, that that's tough. I, I I thought at least there was some deserving. You, you can't if if it is the being of God, then my goodness does not make it happen. God is merciful. He is compassionate because that's the way He is. So your goodness has no control over it. You see, there are, He owns it. You don't. See, if if your goodness could make God be merciful, then you would have a few stocks or something in his mercy. You'd have some control then. No, you don't. And, of course, on the flip side, even if you're bad and rotten to the core, that does not repulse his mercy because his mercy isn't because you're good nor repulsed because you're bad. In fact, he's got nothing to do with that. This is this is both a threat and relief at the same time. <clears throat> because on the one hand, I, I, I meet with people that are horrified that they can't earn anything. You see, it, it, it strips us, doesn't it? It, it? it leaves you sort of speechless and open mouth. I can't do anything to make God love me because he's already in the process of loving me. And on the other hand, what a relief that however screwed up my life is, whatever the wickedness of my way, his mercy is strong and right in the middle of my darkness standing with me. So mercy, this aspect of Love, the isness of God inside your life, and it flows from Him freely. And of course, well, you see, it, it's. I was going to say beyond deserving, but deserving doesn't come into it. And, and religion has made such a big deal of that. You don't deserve it. Well, no, we don't deserve it because the Word being from the being of God is outside of deserving. You see, do you see that? Of course you're not deserving because you've got nothing to do with deserving. You are meeting God in the ownership of his love, his love in that mode of coming to you. And so it's beyond deserving. As I just said, I can't earn it by being good, nor does it be given because I'm some pitiable wretch. Nor is it repulsed by my my sin. All all that's got just to do with religion. When I get to God, he is this. So stop talking about deserving. It's got nothing to do with it. It's a word that points only to God being faithful to himself and his promises in giving himself away to us. And so, because it's rooted in loving kindness, we know that God has sworn by himself to be that to us. 
Bartimaeus knew that. How well he knew it, of course, is another matter, but he knew it. He knew that the mercy of God, the mercy of God, the compassion of God's love, covenant that was centered in Messiah, the one to come. Didn't matter what anyone else said, whether the members of his family, the members of the city, or his fellow beggars, or even stray thoughts in his own head. It didn't matter. The mercy of God. That's the foundation upon which he is going to give a very specific request. But the foundation is the God who is, the God of mercy. And and so mercy, in the sense I've just said, is a word that calls for faith. I can't do anything, you say. I I don't stand with some sack of good works. I, I, I can't. I stand in awe before a mercy that loves me with the absolute surety of who God is. So what do I do? What's my... My response is to trust him. That's it. Faith. It's, I trust that God is the God he says he is, who has revealed himself in Jesus Messiah, who has come. I trust him. That's, there's nothing else to do. I trust him. There, there's no whining. Uh, you know, so, somehow some people feel that if they look bad enough that God will have what they understand of mercy. Have you noticed that all the whining? Have you noticed people who are religious, they get a special whine, they nasal, they talk through their nose. I can't do it. Um, but, you know, they, oh, I'm, oh, most merciful God. You, oh, they, they, don't, they don't ask for groceries like that. They don't ask you to pass the salt like that, but when they go into church, they get this funny whine, and they grovel, and they recite their unworthiness, and they say, I'm no good, I'm a worm. Oh, quit it. Understand the beautiful, magnificent mercy of God, that God is merciful because God is mercy. And it's for that reason that this this beggar, who of course was educated in groveling and whining, that's what beggars did, but there's no whining here. This man speaks with boldness. In fact, his boldness raises his voice above what would be quite a din. The crowd is shouting hurrahs to Jesus. I mean, it's a a crowd in a frenzy of excitement concerning Jesus, but his voice rises above the din. It's charged with emotion, bold expectancy. He cries for mercy. Oh, look at this. Look at him. Jesus. Yes, Messiah, but of course, when... From where we stand, we know Messiah was beyond anything they'd ever dreamed. Their idea of Messiah was wonderful, and, um, well, not not all of them. Many saw 
Messiah to be a political, bloodthirsty general of an army. But the the likes of Bartimaeus and a certain set of the people in those days, they saw beyond that. And and the Old Testament presents this magnificent person. But when he came, he takes our breath away completely because he is more than the most amazing man you've ever met. He is God. God in our flesh. God creator. The God who has been there since the first page of Genesis. God. God the Son has come into our humanity and and to such an extent that he is one with our humanity as to become a speck of flesh life in the womb of the Virgin Mary, to be born through a human birth canal, or as Isaiah, that most ancient prophet, had said of Messiah, that unto us a child is born, And in the same breath, he said, and unto us a son is given. God the Son is given to us, but in being given, it's a child that is taken from Mary, the virgin. He is God from God, one with our humanity. He who said his name is I Am is now... He's a Galilean carpenter. He looks like it. He talks like it. Around 30, 31 years of age. And he's walking the street that is now the entrance into the city of Jericho. Huh. I mean, can, can you grasp that? That God is making a footprint in the sand of that road. God has joined us. He's not on the edge of our universe calling out to us, I love you, I love you. No, he has literally, in every sense of the word, become one of us. He has become our brother human so that from inside of us he might reveal the love and light of God. No wonder the people shouted. They didn't know who they were shouting to at this point, but they knew that it was beyond anything they'd ever seen or known, and so they shout and they dance and they rejoice that he's coming to Jericho. And, of course, the noise, the noise, that's where it all began, and the beggars are asking, what's going on, what's going on? And, and and somebody who had a care enough said, oh, you know, it's this Jesus. He's finally coming here. And Bartimaeus, everything comes together. All that he has thought and all he's understood comes together. And he immediately begins to shout, as I said, louder than the din, Jesus of Nazareth, son of David, Messiah, have mercy. Um, And that's a good enough translation, have mercy on me, but it might help to sort of get it more literal because we've gotten used to the out of mercy on me, whatever that means. Uh, it, It could be, maybe should be translated as mercy me. 
It, it means Jesus do that or become that or be that which will bring mercy to me. Mercy me, mercy me. Not mercy as a theory, not mercy as something in a hymn book, not mercy preached about, mercy me. Let your mercy come into me. Let the mercy of God come through you, Jesus, and bring that mercy to me. And as he shouts, it must have been some noise, because who really cares? In that din, here in the States, it would be, I suppose, a 4th of July parade um, on steroids. So really, one beggar shouting a bit would be lost in the crowd. This man must have shouted, uh, well, I I don't know. I think you get the message. He, He overcame the din. He was heard, a distinct, clear voice through the din of the people. Jesus had, to the point where the organizers of the parade, I'm not sure who they might be. It just says that the leaders, those who were leading the procession, I, I would assume it's some of the high-ups from the city of Jericho. Usually if it was the disciples, they would be stated as the disciples. This, whoever it was, they were the authority, and they, they tell this man, shut up, which means, as I say, he must have been interrupted the whole thing. What a voice he had. He refused, though, refused to be confined, imprisoned by the thoughts of the organizers. And so it says he shouted all the more. He found he, he had energy he didn't know he had. He shouts boldly. He presents himself in his shout as present, to receive all that mercy promises that comes through Jesus Messiah. He was saying to Jesus, in effect, whoever else you have come for, I know that you have come for me, and I'm here, I'm here. There's no timidity about this chap. He shouts with excited expectation and passion. He will be heard. And he cannot think of not being heard. Let this sink in. Just get the picture. He's responding to God's love initiative. God's initiative, I mean, goes back to the beginning, that the love of God has continually from the beginning refused to let humankind go. And the love of God has been penetrating humankind from the beginning. And now the initiative of God has come to join us in the person of Jesus. So Bartimaeus is taking his initiative to respond to God's initiative. And he's calling for his mercy. Jesus stops. <laughs> if you could imagine that, the whole crowd behind him backs up. 
uh, and the people tend to move toward him. Well, what's going? What's happening? And he says, "Bring that man to me." And uh, <laughs> the mood changed. the 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 organizers now suddenly become those who are on the side of the beggar. They say, "Take encouragement." Be encouraged. He's calling for you. He said, bring him to me. Well, I'm, I'm sure there were still people there that would be annoyed. I mean, the procession was going very great and we were about to come into Jericho and and then this has to happen. And we're, we're off schedule and, you know, and embarrassed that the one who now has center stage is a, a blind beggar. What will they ever think of Jericho? For? He's upset the whole parade. He shamed the city fathers. But God in the flesh has stopped and called for him. And as I've already said, he threw away his beggar's coat because in his mind he will never need it again. And he is brought and stands before Jesus. Okay, (laughs) finally we got to my text. Jesus said, or if you want to put something on your refrigerator, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Come on! Have you ever read that before? I know you have. What do you want? What is Jesus saying? He is saying, Bartimaeus, I'm at your service. You, Bartimaeus, are of limitless concern to me. You, Bartimaeus, you matter. You are significant. To the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. You are worth bringing this parade to a standstill. You're worth being listened to. You're worth receiving the mercy, the love that I come to give. And not just generally, but to receive that love specific to your need to break all the intentions of the powers of darkness. And and now, tell me, what do you want? Oh, you're so precious to me, Bartimaeus. We stopped the whole jolly parade. Everybody's going to stop and listen to this conversation we're having. So I'm enjoying this. What do you want? What do you want me to do for you? I I want to hear it from your lips. I'm not going to assume I know. Though it's pretty obvious, but I'm not going to assume that. I need to hear from your lips. I choose to lay aside what I might know in order to hear from your heart, through your mind, through your emotions, through your voice box. What do you want? I want to hear from your lips how you see your need and exactly what do you want? Hmm, want. 
This is getting uncomfortable. For a moment there, it was getting exciting, but now it gets uncomfortable. What do you want? Do you know what you want? Oh, I know you. You, you, you pray those prayers. You know, Lord, bless, bless everybody. Bless, 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 you know. bless, bless my husband, bless my wife, bless my children, bless everybody. Well, that's not what you want. That's so vague. It just could be a sort of bright cloud. I, what do you want? See, the word want. Want is desire. Boy, that, that got roots down into emotions. But then want, that's an intention. I want that. That, that means it's got roots into your will, your core being. But it's also focused thought and determination. You, this is what I want. I, I, I can at least within me. I can define this, and I desire it. I want it. I determine it. That, that's that's want. And then imagination is involved because you you inevitably by the time you'd get to this point, you you have in your imagination seen that which you desire. What do you want? You probably got to live with that question for the next week. What do you want? See, we shy away from wanting. Or we do. Especially Christians. In fact, <laughs> I have found in many Christian places that want, what I want, what I desire is looked upon as, well, let's say it, at best the flesh, maybe sin, pride. You, you're not supposed to want. Oh, come on. That means, you, you mean the Pharisees were right? You, you mean that we're, we're irrelevant to God? We're, we're just these things that he sort of generally is nice to this, this is God in the flesh. You want to know the will of God? Look at Jesus. He said, he that has seen me has seen the Father. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Why is it that we're afraid to want? See, want is specific. He'd been using the word mercy. That's the general expression of the urgent love. But now Jesus is saying, out of all that mercy would do for you, what specifically do you want? Want is very specific. We, well, let's face it, we don't want, we avoid wanting to avoid disappointment. See, we've been through enough rejections there's been enough in our past where something we dared to want and we didn't get it. And we don't, we don't want to, to get that sort of involvement with God. Let, let's not ask him for something specific. Then we won't have to wonder if we're going to get it or not, you know, and all that sort of stuff. Um, and anyway... The fact is, 
if I can just speak privately in your ear, I don't believe God really is listening, you see, and I don't believe if I asked anything specific, I would get it anyway. And so I'm going to appear very holy, very pious, very spiritual, and say, well, only if it be your will. And I'm going to ask so generally, so vaguely, we wouldn't know if God answered anyway. But everybody thinks I'm such a wonderful, holy person because I submitted and I groveled before God and said, there's nothing I can really say. It's it's all just whatever you want to do. I think Jesus would have sent him back to his beggar's patch. Obviously, you don't know what you want. No, I'm serious. (laughs) I, I have been inside the workings of what is called Christianity for 65 years. I know what I'm talking about. We have been taught that God's iron will, that must be the subject of our asking, the will of God. What do you want? That's beside the point. The will of God must be done. Has it ever occurred to you that the will of God was being done by Jesus saying, what do you want? Oh, the will of God. I remember when I was growing up in this, the will of God. The will of God was so mysterious, you didn't know it. You had to seek the will of God. It was so nebulous, you never could get a handle on it. And anything in life, you were unsure. Is it the will of God? Is it the will of God? Is it like that in your church? I was raised with that. Unsure, doubtful, that we'll ever really know, but we can keep seeking and trying and doing our best. And when things don't happen, we say, well, it wasn't the will of God. The will of God, the will of God. This this rigid will that nobody really knows. One thing we did know, the will of God was opposite to everything that we thought was beautiful and nice and painless. (sighs) Oh, yes, if you sought the will of God, you can be sure. Trouble's coming. Trouble's coming. If you want pain, if you want suffering, if you want poverty, if you want to be sent to some malarial swamp in Africa, pray for the will of God, because that's the kind of God he is. You pray, oh God, we're having a picnic on Monday. Let there be sunshine. The will of God is in a tornado. That's the kind of God he is. It's always opposite to anything that we would think is nice. It means that God talks a different language to us. When we say blessing, he means pain. Though we don't really believe it. Oh, are we confused? I remember when I was briefly a pastor and... and this lady we were praying, she said, well, what what I have is my cross to bear. This, this sickness that I have, this is the will of God for me. And I went to visit the woman, and there beside her bed were all her medicines. I said, I see that you've got quite an array of tools to get out of the will of God. Isn't that amazing? Don't pray for me because this is the will of God that I'm sick. But let me go to a doctor and let me get all the medicines to get me out of the will of God. Oh, how confused! Because we don't have a clue who God really is. Don't have a clue. Jesus, who is God with us, who said, He's seen me, you've seen the Father. He says, what do you want? He didn't say... Submit to the will of God, Bartimaeus. 
There was no suggestion of some dictatorship and impersonal rigid will that's going to grind Bartimaeus into its mould. Jesus is the will of God, revealed in the flesh. And he's standing before Bartimaeus, and he said, Let me serve your will. <laughs> yes, I, you did hear me. That was not a misstate. Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? Let me serve your will. What do you want? Jesus was saying, Let our wills come together. The will of God is his love reaching to you. Let your will, your desire come. What specific mercy do you want? And he asked for a very specific application of mercy, a very narrow request. That's it. That's what you want. It, it, what, what you want is like when you, as a child, you put the magnifying glass and, and focus the sun until the paper burst into flame. That, that's what you want. It's not a vague covering many possibilities. It's the one thing he desired. Bold. Daring. Believing that it was in line with the vast love that stood in front of him. But to our flesh, that's risky. Oh boy, it was a lot easier just sitting in church and mumbling prayers that had no specific. I remember I was, well, I won't say where I was a pastor, but they had a prayer meeting. It'd been there, I think, since John the Baptist. But so I, I couldn't change it. It was there. Every Thursday night we had the prayer meeting. And, and, uh, and you know, anybody got any requests? And so they, you could almost see the people think, I got a funny request. Uh, and then they would put up their hand and uh, and give some request. But then it was part of the tradition. You, you would say, unspoken requests. And all the hands were, what on earth is this? Could you imagine that? You know, Jesus passes through and he said, unspoken requests. No, what do you want, for goodness sake? What do you want? But it's risky, you know. It might not be his will. He might not want to do it. I might be disappointed. I don't know if I'm worthy to ask. Now, the interesting thing is, Jesus identified all of this that's gone with Bartimaeus right up to this point. He calls it faith. He said, Bartimaeus, your faith has made you well. That is, you're reaching out and laying hold of the mercy of God and all that God wills for you in his promises and in me, Jesus the bold taking of all that pours forth from the being of God. Faith, it's, it's taking that which the Spirit has <laughs> urged me to want, laying hold of the gift that is given to me. Open my eyes to see the vastness of your gift that you will that we want to unite with your want your want to give. Right now, in the situation you are in, the loving kindness of God that is in Jesus, that is now beyond our story, is inside of you through the Holy Spirit. 
The loving kindness fills you, is all around you, fills your situation. Open your eyes to see it. <laughs> and this situation you're in, filled with its unique needs physical, material, emotional, mental, imaginations, there. all the opportunities, all the challenges, all the pressures, all the expectations, they're all churning around in this situation. And what do you want? He is with us. <laughs> he is with us to be that answer, to make all things right. So I say dare to ask, dare, dare to want, risk to want, be bold to want. Throw off the shackles of religion that have told you you can't do that. Get rid of that timidity and groveling which is not holy and not spiritual, it's the very reverse. You in Christ Jesus are exalted to participate in the creating of the rest of your life in accord with the gift of his love. Yes, you heard me. You are called to participate in the creating of the rest of your life because the rest of Bartimaeus' life hung upon what do you want? And Bartimaeus participated in the love of God. That's where it's at. Well, there it is. We might pick up on this next week. We might. But for now, let this incoming week just let the Holy Spirit open up to show you what do you want and to realize how little we've ever given in answer to that question. What do you want? And to recognize the love of God that delights to embrace our wants and to dance with us in life. And so now the blessing of God who is almighty love, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Ah, his love, mercy, compassion be with you, filling every moment of your life. The Holy Spirit, your teacher, that you might be taught to dance with that love inside every part of your life. So I bless you, and that is the way it is.